This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. A tiny but powerful number of scientists, applauded by a few famous Greens, urge us to accept nuclear power. They see it as the salvation of our civilization, our climate, our future. It isn't happening. As you'll hear, nuclear power is shrinking, not expanding. Worldwide, major nuclear companies are going bankrupt or soaking up billions more of your taxes, or both. Expert Michael Schneider looks into the secrets of the great nuclear leap forward in China. Remember, after Chernobyl and Fukushima, an accident anywhere in the world can irradiate the northern hemisphere. China's new untested reactors are your reactors. Their radiation can land in your backyard. All our lives, we've been told the problem of storing nuclear waste for a million years will be solved by science and technology. Instead, you will hear how hot waste from 70 years ago from making the first bombs continues to threaten and poison a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri. There's nothing anybody is doing about it. Dr. Helen Caldicott also reports on the mad rush to turn beautiful South Australia into a nuclear waste dump for the world. Boiling water with reactors has become a time bomb. It's a failed technology. It's a path better not taken, a threat and a burden to all succeeding generations. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. While our heads are filled with daydreams of Hollywood stars and nightmares of financial collapse, China is taking another great leap forward. China is building to become the world's largest nuclear-powered economy. A Chinese nuclear expert says the burst of reactor construction there brings, quote, the most probable period for a nuclear accident in China forward to between 2020 and 2030, end quote. The risks to very heavily populated parts of China are huge to unimaginable. As we learn from Fukushima, an accident anywhere in the world can launch radiation around the Earth. What is going on with nuclear power in China? From Paris, our guest, Michael Schneider, makes it his business to know. He's the lead author of the World Nuclear Industry Status Reports. Schneider has advised European governments and members of the European Parliament on energy issues. Michael Schneider, a warm welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you very much for having me. Well, the nuclear industry in China can be as gigantic and mysterious as many other things in that country. Is the current situation clear and readable to you? Well, let's say we know the basic numbers. We know how many reactors are operating. We know how many are supposed to be under construction in various stages. Uh, Everything else is pretty much uncertain. I mean by that, for example, how effective is the nuclear safety authority? Uh, What kind of quality control insurance can be given? You know, what is the the buildup of skills in the country? You know, when when people know maybe that uh, China generates something like one million engineers per year, but you know, a trained engineer is not a nuclear operator. So one of the biggest challenges um, in the country with this huge 
build-up of nuclear power in a very short time is really train people to uh, levels that are, you know, sufficiently qualified. Well, just briefly, how many nuclear plants are operating in China now, and how many are under construction? Well, there's 31 reactors uh, operating uh, right now, as far as we know. And by operating, we're counting reactors that are on the grid. And there is another 24 or so that are under construction. So my first impression is that China risks becoming an experimental lab for many untested nuclear reactor technologies. All the dreams of the nuclear scientists seem to be either planned or under construction in China. They're talking about hopes for pebble reactors and thorium plants and many other new kinds, aren't they? Yeah, but these reactors are not really under construction. When we we're talking about reactors in operation, we're talking about so-called Generation 2 reactors. And the ones that are under construction are indeed, some of them are so-called Generation 3 reactors, of which none, or 3-plus reactors, of which none are operating. Of course, there are four reactors uh, under construction of the Westinghouse, Toshiba Westinghouse Model AP-1000, and there's two reactors of the European Pressurized Water Reactor, EPR, uh, under construction. And then they started building their own Generation 3 plus reactor, Hualong-1. But it's interesting that, you know, by saying that I don't know much more about what the their own reactor design is really supposed to look like. And even in a country like Pakistan, where China wants to build uh, one of those uh, newer designs, the courts have uh, stated that it, it might be a bit early to, um, to export a design that is unproven. And there has been a lot of hype about the increased safety of third-generation reactors over current designs. How many third-generation reactors are operating in the world, and what is their track record? Actually, the ones that are that are operating are not really Generation 3 reactors. By Generation 3 or 3, that's why people use the term 3+. There are some reactor types that uh, have been designed by the Japanese that are supposed to be Generation 3, but they're basically a little better Generation 2 reactors. There, there is no disruption in the technology, really, up to the, the EPRs and AP1000s that have some features that don't exist in, in uh, currently operating reactors. It doesn't really change the basics of safety uh, in the nuclear sector at all. So we're basically in a situation where there's none of the, the newer generation reactors operating around the world and even that newer generation is not really making the big difference when it comes to safety. In January 2016, your publication, The World Nuclear Industry Status Reports, issued an update titled, Mind the China Effect. How does reactor building boom in China compare to the nuclear industry reality in the rest of the world? Well, it, it was very interesting when I went to China in uh, December, uh, I realized that in China itself, there is no consciousness whatsoever for the fact that uh, China is basically the only country building. If you uh, go onto the website uh, worldnuclearreport.org and you see on the homepage this graphic 
it becomes visual that the only country that is actually starting up reactors and building reactors is China. So 10 reactors that have started up in 2015, eight started up in China. So two reactors in other countries, it's just basically nothing. We're, we're talking about in the point, you know, zero point something percentage rate of the uh, capacity that is built around the planet in new electricity generation power plants. So all around the globe, the reactor building is so low that it doesn't, it's not enough to actually keep up with reactor closures. China is really the only country that's, that's massively building right now. Well, as I said in the opening, a Chinese scientist named Hu Zhaozhu has called the rapid-fire expansion of nuclear power in his country insane. Now, he's not a beginner. He's a scientist who worked in China's nuclear weapons program. He's been a, a government supporter for decades. Now he's 88. He can speak out, I suppose. What about other critics of the nuclear leap forward in China? Are they under pressure to keep quiet, or are they even disappearing? Well, I think you refer to the same person I met who is an, a member of the Academy of Sciences, uh, a nuclear physicist. So he's a very senior scientist, and I met him uh, last time when I was in, in China and Macau. He's very outspoken, and he's very straightforward, and uh, he's actually not the only one if you go backstage, but he's one of the very few scientists that come out in public. So public statements in that area of nuclear energy is still, you know, a, a big problem. It's not an open society in that area, to say the least. Well, not that the United States is either, to be honest, or Canada, but uh, that's another story. So all of China's current nuclear reactors are either on the Pacific coast or very near it. Who has been very concerned about plans to build more nuclear plants far inland? Why does that add extra risk and potential environmental damage? Yeah, it can it can be uh, quite surprising, and it was to me actually. To what extent this is a, a controversy, even in in the country, and it's an open. This is is actually an open controversy. Inland reactors is an open controversy, and I've seen some quite discussions. Very harsh, very direct discussions at a symposium at the Yale University Beijing Center in December. There are a number of reasons why inland reactors pose specific problems. One is for safety, obviously a crucial ingredient is water. And nuclear power plants are, by the way, the largest water consumers amongst the technologies that generate electricity. Uh, so you need huge, gigantic quantities of water to cool these reactors. And obviously rivers, I mean, there are in other countries reactors along rivers, but it is felt that a disaster like Fukushima, if it had happened inland, would have had dramatically different consequences because, of course, a lot of the radioactivity that was emitted by the three meltdowns ended up in the ocean. So it got diluted. Uh, it's not to say that it went away, but it's very different from if it had come down in a way as an inland reactor, like the Chernobyl reactors. Now, the Chernobyl reactors had relatively little local impact. 
I measure my words, relatively little local impact because there was a very severe graphite fire that lasted for 10 days. So it created a chimney effect which brought the radioactive particles to a height of about four kilometers and spread it all over Europe, which was obviously bad news for the, for other countries and uh, people living in farther distances, but better news for the immediate vicinities. So imagine very high concentration of nuclear power plants inland. Uh, so that that is definitely one of the concerns is the spread of radioactivity. But it's also that the water contamination itself, Chinese people are very concerned about Yangtze River and you know, the, the dependency of millions and millions of people uh, of the water from rivers for agriculture and uh, just basic, this is the basis of life. So the, the, this idea that these water resources could be contaminated is, is a very major issue in China. Stay tuned for the world-famous nuclear activist, Helen Caldicott. You are listening to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest nuclear advisor, Michael Schneider. We're talking about the big risks and reactor safety in China. For newcomers to the Chinese nuclear scene, one mystery is the relationship between giant Chinese nuclear corporations and the government, whether federal or state governments. Is it really clear, Michael, who owns what and who controls the reactors of China? Well, it's very much a state-controlled business. There's no doubt about that. Um, there's basically CGN and CNNC, uh, China uh, National Nuclear Corporation and uh, uh, the China Nuke General Nuclear Group. Only one CGN is listed at the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So it has some kind of a private capital, but it's very clearly both companies are under state control. There's no doubt about that. Which actually, incidentally, raises issues about participation of these companies in foreign projects, because it basically means if you build a nuclear reactor, let's say in the UK, with Chinese national capital for sensitive electricity generating power plants, it you know gives the Chinese government some sort of an how shall I say, a control over sensitive parts of an economy of a country like the UK, which has been raised as issue in the UK. Well, let's zero in on one reactor complex under construction. I'm thinking of the Taishan nuclear plant on the coast of southern China. How does that relate to reactor problems in Europe and Scandinavia? Well, in Taishan, there are two units of the EPR, the European Pressurized Water Reactor, or shall I say the European Problem Reactor, under construction. The first one that started building was in Olkiluoto in Finland, which uh, started building in uh, 2005 with a target date of uh, grid connection in 2009. Uh, the current projection for startup is 2018. So this project is at least nine years late. It is also at least a factor of three to four beyond the projected budget. Uh, it's now standing at officially at eight and a half billion, but it hasn't been updated for a while. The second plant in Europe that is under construction is Flamanville 3 in France, uh, basically building at home because it's built by the French government-controlled consortium Arriva. 
and the client is the largest nuclear utility in the world, EDF, uh, Electricité de France, uh, both state-owned. And here we see a plan that is officially now at 10.5 billion euros, so a factor of four over, over budget and, you know, many years behind schedule as well. So one of the issues that have come up more recently, besides many, many others, is that there were defaults found, uh, fabrication defects found in, uh, in parts of the reactor pressure vessel. Now, the reactor pressure vessel is like the most central part of a nuclear power plant. It's a gigantic tank that contains the nuclear core, the nuclear fuel. So it's essential for safety. And in the bottom of the, the bottom part, as well as in the lid, there were these defects found, which are beyond technical specifications. There is no doubt now. Testing has been done and inspections have been done. The same fabrication uh, methodology has been used for the Taishan reactors. Now, while you can replace a, a reactor pressure vessel lid, like the head of it, the cover, you cannot really slice the bottom of it and uh, take it off and replace by a new one. So it basically would mean scrap the whole plant, make a huge opening into the containment and replace the reactor pressure vessel might as well start rebuilding the entire plant because it's also already connected to primary piping. So the safety authorities in France have said that there is all kinds of calculations. You have to imagine that basically all the calculations for accident scenarios and transients have to be redone uh, because the, the builder has to prove that even though the technical specifications, uh, specifications are not met, the plant would still be safe. That's not easy to do, and it's, it's a very large number of calculations that have to be redone. And some is destructive testing that has to be done. Some, some is uh, non-destructive testing. So it's a, it's, it's a huge workload that has to be done. First results won't be there before the end of the year. In the United States, there's at least the facade of government oversight of safety via the Nuclear Regulatory Commission over private operators. Now we're talking about in China, where the government that's supposed to regulate is also pushing nuclear plant construction as, as fast as they can. Does that lead to a sort of satisfying feeling of safety regulation? You know, as I said, we have very little insight on into the um, uh, nuclear safety culture, as we say, um, in China. Uh, very little is known. To be honest, I don't even know how many people are uh, employed by the, the safety authorities in China, and very little is known about their, the origin of their training, of the quality of their training, etc. But, you know, keep in mind that what's the difference to the situation in Russia? What's the difference to the situation in France? Government companies that are building and operating uh, facilities and uh, the same for the control. So it's government built, operated, and controlled. You know, if you go through the various uh, countries that are still building nuclear reactors actively, uh, we don't see actually examples, many examples of countries where we can say we're actually in an open democracy, especially in this field. After the Fukushima nuclear accident in Japan in 2011, China delayed... Excuse me, it's not yes. over. Oh. You mean after the beginning of the accident? That's so true. 
China delayed further construction of new reactors for reassessment. Now they've all got the green light to go ahead. Are you satisfied that a Fukushima-class reactor meltdown is less likely in China? And if so, why? Well, it's very true that the Chinese uh, reacted very strongly to uh, the Chinese government reacted very strongly to the Fukushima events in March 2011, and for four years. The entire program was frozen. Uh, besides the reactors that were at a late stage of construction, so construction continued and reactors have been put into operation. That's one of the reasons why people didn't really see that there was a freeze in the program. In 2011, there was no new construction started, and in 2014, there was no uh, construction started. So. Basically, over that entire period since 2011, as many reactors were started than in one year in 2010 in China. So it was a very, very major measure that that has been taken. You ask me whether is that sufficient? Is that a guarantee of safety? I have no idea, and I would be very uh, doubtful about that because one of the issues about nuclear safety is you can only increase safety by a very large pluralistic expertise. That is a, an absolutely fundamental ingredient to safety. Uh, by the way, in, in whatever is the area, it's, you cannot reach high levels of safety under uh, information closure. That's impossible. So that's not really uh, a situation which I think is satisfactory, but again, Is China really such a big uh, exception? I'm not so sure about that. Well, as I said, we know a reactor accident anywhere in the world affects us all. Who is watching what is going on in China? And where can listeners who want to follow up pick up more on this important issue? Well, that's a good question. Uh, There are, you know, few sources that provide specifically good information on nuclear power in China. Some of them are expensive trade journals, and I'm thinking of uh, Nuclear Intelligence Weekly, for example, which is an excellent source, but it's very expensive. For listeners that want to get some good insight from time to time, China Dialogue has proven a very good source on environmental issues in general, and they cover nuclear power as well. So China Dialogue is interesting also because it's published in English and in Chinese. So it's a both-way kind of information channel. Do you have a story or some insight about nuclear power in China that I've missed that you would like to add? There are a lot of a lot of stories or a lot of uh, issues. You know, one of the things is that to me it's uh, it's been interesting to to follow this over three decades. In 1985, I was in the room when uh, the president of EDF, uh, the state-controlled uh, French nuclear utility announced the signature of the first uh, foreign nuclear power plant in China, the Guangdong or Daya Bay nuclear power plants, which was a British-French consortium. You know, one of the journalists in the room asked the question, are you not going to lose your shirt in that deal? Because it was pretty well known at the time that the French industry lost money in that deal. And the president would answer, well, maybe maybe not our shirt, but our cufflinks. And the director general sitting right beside him uh, said, yeah, cufflinks, but golden ones. So they lost a lot of money. 
Now, why did they do that? They did that because the Chinese had in their planning the equivalent of 20 reactors by 2020. So it was seen as a, as a gigantic market for nuclear power plants. But in fact, the Chinese were never a market for larger numbers of nuclear power plants. They bought two Franco-British ones. They bought two Franco-French ones. They bought two Canadian ones, four American ones, two Franco-German ones, two Russian ones. So it's, it's technology shopping. And that was the whole Chinese strategy was to say, uh, well, we're going to buy technology and develop our own. So I think it's kind of amazing that that there are still people out there in the nuclear industry that think that they can sell any numbers of reactors in China. Uh, According to my conversations with Chinese officials or semi-officials, there's no chance that China would order more EPRs, for example. And I think the same would be true for AP-1000s, the Japanese-American technology. Well, that was great. I just find so few people who know anything about this industry that I really appreciate the years you put into it. It is a long story. <laughs> you keep discovering things every day. You know, it's it's just unbelievable. And uh, to me, you know, one of the things which really bother me is that decision makers still know so little about it. So decisions are made about billions in investments without the people actually making the decisions having the slightest idea of what this is all about. And I think that is really worrying. Uh, If you see that today, you know, as we speak, I mean, when I say today, I mean literally today, the value at the stock market of the largest nuclear operator, EDF, has dropped to its lowest level in history. That is over 85% less than its highest level since it's rated on the stock market. And the same is true for Arriva, which is calling itself a global leader of the industry. Now, just to give you an idea, that today the value, the stock value dropped below 4 euros per share. 4 euros per share. Wow. Sounds like the coal companies... The highest level was 72.5. So we're talking something like a 94, 95% drop over the past eight years. This company is bankrupt in real terms, not bankrupt in, you know, imaginary terms. At the same time, this company, Areva, is the operator of the site, the nuclear site, that has the largest radioactive inventory on Earth, which is the La Hague reprocessing facility for spent nuclear fuel in Normandy in France. Now, you don't need to be an expert to imagine that having a bankrupt company running a high-risk facility cannot be very healthy. They're going to want to cut corners and fire staff and maybe do things the easy way. There you go. And uh, it's been announced that on that site alone, just that high-risk site alone, the company wants to cut 500 jobs over the next five years. Now, the total workforce is something like 3,000. 500 is a huge percentage. Now, my question is, did these guys go fishing all day, or what did they do so that you can just fire them? 
You know, I mean, this is what really, really makes me nervous, incredibly nervous. And I, I think that China is very important because uh, it's the only country building and it's, it's going very fast and it's especially population density is so high in China. If you look at the Guangdong reactors, I mean, Jesus, it's 30 kilometers from Hong Kong. It was a pretty crazy idea to begin with. But, you know, is it better? Is it any better in other countries? Is the situation healthy? Is uh, safety guaranteed? I don't know. If I look at the financial and economic state of health of uh, nuclear companies around the planet, I'm very scared. And that's even without talking about things like drones or terrorist attacks or sabotage. You know, on all these issues, we have seen very pretty extraordinary events that didn't make big headlines yet, but, uh, you know, that bear the potential for disasters to come. Hi, I'm Alex Smith. We've been talking with nuclear and energy expert Michael Schneider. If you want to Google Michael, it's easy because his first name is spelled M-Y-C-L-E. Michael is world leader in reporting on the global nuclear industry, especially as the lead author of the World Nuclear Industry Status Reports. He has many other publications, and I'll put links to the works of Michael Schneider in my weekly show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.info. Michael, thank you for sharing your time and your expertise with us on Radio Ecoshock. Thanks very much for inviting me, Alex. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. In a populated suburb of St. Louis, Missouri, nuclear waste from American bomb-making is washing into surface water. Now all that radioactive mess is threatened by an underground fire just 1,200 feet away. If that's the best the United States can do after all these years— What chance does Australia have with their grand plans to make South Australia a dumping ground for the world's nuclear waste? It's time for another round of nuclear madness, and the doctor is in. It's Dr. Helen Caldicott, the most famous anti-nuclear campaigner in the world. Helen, welcome back to Radio Ecoshock. Thank you, Alex. Let's start with your own country, Australia. Who in their right minds would volunteer to accept nuclear waste from around the world right into beautiful South Australia? Well, okay, that's a good question, and they're not in their right minds. They are suffering an an acute attack of nuclear madness, in fact. Um, It's interesting because the whole anti-nuclear movement in Australia started in 71, actually in my sitting room, when we got a high fallout from French tests in the Pacific and uh, I wrote a letter to the paper and then was on television talking about the fact children could get leukemia, etc., from the French tests. And because the Australians really don't like the French, they think they're arrogant, uh, in nine months, 75% of Australians spontaneously rose up, marches in city streets, etc., and the Prime Minister was forced to take France to the International Court of Justice, where she was then forced to test underground. And that was spontaneous, really, through education. And then several years later, I found out that the Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, wanted to mine and export uranium, knowing nothing about nuclear power. I went to the university library and got a book called uh, Poison Power by Goffman and Tamplin, Goffman being a physician. 
and a physicist, and I was absolutely shocked. So I got around and spoke to most of the unions um, in Australia. At that time, the workforce was heavily unionised about the medical aspects of mining uranium, both to them, their families and the world. And then so the, the Council of Trade Unions, Australian Council of Trade Unions, then banned uranium mining for five years and export. So at that time in the 70s and 80s, Australians were extremely well informed about plutonium, we had bumper stickers which said plutonium is thalidomide forever because it enters the placenta and damages the fetus the way thalidomide did. But, you know, generations change, um, people change, the media changes, and if you don't keep educating people and you don't have the expertise um, present in the media to educate people, people think everything's okay. So into this vacuum, if you will, nuclear vacuum, moved the South Australian government because the federal government cancelled car companies in South Australia, so there is a lot of unemployment. Now, there are a lot of pro-nuclear people who've converged upon South Australia, including from the London School of Economics, and they have been pushing for Adelaide to build nuclear submarines, to build small modular reactors, um, to um, have the whole fuel cycle from uranium mining right through to waste disposal and above and beyond everything to store the world's radioactive waste in South Australia. The notion being that uh, South Australia would earn so much money from grateful countries that people would not have to pay taxes nor electricity bills in South Australia and it would be all just very good. There's been a Royal Commission, which is totally stacked with pro-nuclear people. I testified there, and the lawyer was very aggressive. It was like a, an inquisition, really. Um, and most people who've testified are pro-nuclear. So the thing's out of hand. The Australian Broadcasting Commission, like your CBC, has been surprisingly docile about this. And the main newspaper in South Australia is Murdoch's paper, the advertiser. He owns 75% of the printed press in Australia. So things are grim. I think, though, when the report comes out on February the 15th, advising that radioactive waste should be stored in South Australia, the proverbial SHIT will hit the fan um, and people will be extremely upset. I'll be speaking at a public meeting the night after that uh, announcement is made. The person who is the commissioner of the Royal Commission is a man called Kevin Scarce. I like that name, scarcely knowledgeable. And he's an army man, no scientific background at all. And he's the one to make the decision. So things are really grim. And it just shows when you have an uneducated, docile public, what people can do in the name of what I would call evil, because Nuclear power plants are cancer factories um, and they make waste that lasts for a million years and will inevitably leak and get into people's bodies and the food chain, etc., etc. And also they're bomb factories because any, any reactor makes plutonium and you need five kilos to make a bomb. So things are very grim here. And, you know, Cameco's got its fingers in the pie as well. Cameco is really bad from your country. And, and Canada hasn't a moral leg to stand on because she's one of the main exporters of uranium. And 
In fact, the first two atomic bombs used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were manufactured from Canadian uranium. But, but just a minute now, Helen. I mean, South Australia is a major uranium producer. Isn't it fair that then that that region should take back the radioactive byproducts that it's shipping out to other countries? Well, we're, we're talking about the world's radioactive products, and I think there are... Oh, 255,000 tonnes of high-level waste, I think, in the world now that's accrued. So you could say the same thing for Canada. Why don't you take the waste back from all the uranium you've exported to be used in your can-do reactors around no the world? <laughs> there you go. So you're a good, you know, you ask a good devil's advocate question. But it's anyway, the truth is that the storage of radioactive waste has never been worked out. And, you know, I've been saying for 40, how long have I been doing this? 44 years? What about radioactive waste? And they say, trust us, we're scientists, we're good scientists, we'll find the cure to the storage of radioactive waste. And I say, well, that's like me saying to a patient, look, you've got pancreatic carcinoma, your prognosis is six months, but trust me, I'm a very good doctor and scientist. In 20 years' time, I'll find the cure. In fact, so ludicrous is this situation that in America there's a... a a statute called the Waste Confidence Bill. They have confidence, the nuclear industry, that they will work out what to do with radioactive waste over a million years. So the whole thing is, well, it's psychotic. There's a split between reality and perception of reality. How do we know that South Australia is being considered for foreign waste and not just medical waste generated in Australia? Well, it's very interesting, Alex. There are two situations occurring. One is we've got a small reactor at a place called Lucas Heights, surrounded by, I think, 13 schools and kindergartens in the suburbs of Sydney. And that has been going for a long time. It was set up originally so that Australia could make its own bomb. America stepped in, however, and said, no, you're not allowed to have a bomb. And the excuse has always been that, you know, we use Lucas Heights, a small reactor, to make radioactive isotopes for medicine. The truth is that for many years we've been able to make all the isotopes we need in medicine from a cyclotron which makes no radioactive waste. Now, the Lucas Heights has generated quite a lot of high-level waste and so what it did was send it to France to be reprocessed. In other words, out of sight is out of mind but the agreement was that when it's reprocessed, which means chopping the incredibly radioactive fuel rods into small pieces, dissolving them in concentrated nitric acid. And from that witch's corrosive radioactive brew is precipitated out plutonium, which has only one use, really, and that's for bombs. Why we wanted that, I don't know. So now France did that, um, and then I think they vitrified the liquid waste, I think, into glass, which doesn't really work anyway. And the agreement was we it would be returned. Now, the Commonwealth Government is in charge of that process. And it's an entirely different process from the Royal Commission taking place in South Australia where they want to import the world's radioactive waste. And apparently the Commonwealth Government is extremely annoyed with this South Australian Royal Commission. I mean, they're at odds with each other. Now, what they've proposed, the Commonwealth Government, is five or six sites in Australia out of the way, out of sight, out of mind, to store this waste. Well, they announced these sites some months ago, and, of course, 
the local communities are up in arms, very annoyed. And in fact, one of them has asked me to go out and talk about it. What they propose to do is virtually just build a shed and put this waste in a shed and then forget about it. Um, what they've done now in the interim is build a shed at Lucas Heights and put it at Lucas Heights. So that's a different contingency compared to the South Australian Royal Commission and their objective. What about dumps on lands claimed by the Aboriginal people? What are the original owners of the land saying, and are Aboriginal people represented on this Royal Commission in South Australia? No, they're not, because to put in a submission, you have to get it signed by JP, a Justice of Peace. You know, those people out on their own country, they don't have JPs. And so the whole thing was mitigated against any Aboriginal people putting in submissions. However, a few submissions have gone in in the name of the Aboriginal people. The truth is, you know, this land belongs to them, all of it. We stole it, like you did in Canada from the original Indigenous people. There are land rights, but governments in fact, have been able to say, well, you know, in this area where there's uranium, you can't have any land rights. That's what they do in past laws. I mean, Caucasians, in in one sense, I believe, are very wicked. They don't care about Indigenous people who know how to care for the land and the world. But the Aborigines can muster a fairly large contingent of people, and they do have impact on the public consciousness when they go to Parliament and and testify. Um, I'm not sure what our new Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, will do about it. He's made no comment, but um, his wife, Lucy Turnbull, who's a very intelligent woman, came to one of my talks a few years ago with her daughter, Daisy, and I thought, oh boy, this is good. I can teach them, and you know they can then talk to Malcolm. However, at the end of my talk, they left and didn't stay for questions. And I thought, oh, I don't think they got the message or that they didn't want to get the message. So I'm not sure where the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull stands on all of this. In the new carbon-charged world, you are listening to Radio EcoShock, broadcast around the world on radio and the Internet. Find Radio EcoShock on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, the weekly show blog at ecoshock.info, at archive.org, and our website, ecoshock.org. Tune in. Turn on. All right. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. My guest is the world-renowned anti-nuclear campaigner, Dr. Helen Caldicott. I'd say you are from Australia, Helen, but you did spend many years in the United States, and there you reinvigorated a doctor's movement as well, didn't you? Yes, I spent 20 years in Boston, um, and I was at Harvard on the faculty, working there, and I was asked by the editor of the New England Journal, Inglefinger, to write um, an article on the medical dangers of nuclear power. So I spent a year off and on in the Countway Library at Harvard researching the literature. This was 78. I wrote the article, so I learned an awful lot, mostly from the nuclear power industry, Journal of Health Physics. And um, it was rejected by peer review because they said, well, you haven't said anything good about nuclear power. And I said, look, there's nothing good medically about nuclear power. It's like saying if you have a factory full of of polio virus and by replicating it produce heat and electricity, um, that's good. So it was rejected. 
However, during the time I was writing and researching for that article, a young physician visited me and um, I turned to him and I said, you know, Ira, this is a medical issue. Let's start a medical organization. And it, it happened that there was an old medical organization which was now defunct in Boston called Physicians for Social Responsibility, but still was registered in the state of Massachusetts. So we used the name, but there were no members. And... Um, we put an ad in the New England Journal of Medicine about the dangers of nuclear power and serendipitously it came out the day after Three Mile Island melted down and suddenly we were besieged by members. And after that we started doing a symposia on the medical effects of nuclear war and the journalists were stunned. They said, well, what are, what are doctors talking about nuclear war for? This is a political issue. And we said, no, it's a medical issue because nuclear war will cause the final epidemic of the human race. And so... We were besieged by money from foundations and we really prospered. In, in time, we had, we had 153 chapters and 23,000 members. We were all over television, radio, writing op-ed pieces. And in fact, we led the movement in America and indeed throughout the world because I traveled everywhere to Canada and all over the world starting similar medical organizations the only place I couldn't get in was Russia, but then, then they joined as well. And so in five years, from 78, where most Americans said to me, well, I'd rather be dead than red, <laughs> in other words, die in a nuclear war than be a communist, um, they realized that it was better to be alive and, and not have a nuclear war. 80% of Americans in five years became opposed to nuclear weapons and war. So that was, I, I consider, the second American revolution, peaceful, sagacious, and Gandhian. And then many other organizations started, like Architects for Social Responsibility, because they said nuclear war would destroy architect, architecture, you know, historians. Even morticians became opposed because they didn't want to work with radioactive bodies. And I said, well, don't worry, you'll be one yourself. But anyway, they passed the resolution against nuclear war. So it was a really exciting time. And we got a million people in Central Park, the largest rally ever in the history of America. And Canada was all alight and afire. And that movement globally led to the end of the Cold War. I met with Reagan in his office for an hour and a half, hour and a quarter, and talked to him about nuclear war and all the technology, etc. He knew very little, but he did then afterwards start working with Gorbachev and he started to say nuclear war must never be fought and can never be won. So that was an amazing thing, but what happened was when the Berlin Wall came down um, and Gorbachev allowed it to happen, People thought, thank God that's over. And we all fell on our couches almost unconscious. We were so tired and thought things would be fixed. And they started talking about the peace dividend. They wouldn't have to spend money on weapons anymore. But never underestimate the power of the military-industrial complex, as President Eisenhower once warned us. And they mobilized themselves because without war, they can't make their weapons and they can't steal America's taxpayers' money. And gradually people forgot, the media dropped it. We were not on television anymore. We seemed irrelevant. And here we are now uh, with, I think, facing the greatest danger or a greater danger uh, since the height of the Cold War. And all that, all that radiation from developing the bombs, quite a bit of it ended up, it turns out, near St. Louis, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, 
right in the middle of America. You'll be heading there. Why are you going to St. Louis? Well, um, during the Manhattan Project, a lot of the uranium came actually from, it was an African country, Zambia, I think, and it was very concentrated. Mostly uranium, when it's mined, it only has 0.7% uranium-235, and that's so if you're Canadian uranium-2, and 235 is the one that fissions, and you have to enrich it to 3% for nuclear power and over 50% for bombs. So it was very concentrated, and it also was, of course, Canadian uranium. There was a company called Mallincroft, and they were enriching the uranium and working with it to make the first bombs for the Manhattan Project. And there was a huge amount of waste and very highly radioactive. And they just dumped it on the ground near the airport and in various locations around that area. And no one really ever took responsibility for it. And it's lying in huge piles near the Coldwater Creek. And and what has happened, of course, is that communities have built houses right up to the waste. And serendipitously, or that's the wrong word, there's a, a rubbish dump, rubbish tip, we call it in Australia, just very close to the radioactive dump and a spontaneous fire has been burning in that underground for a long time and it's approaching the radioactive waste dump. Meanwhile, recently a lot of tests have been performed to show that radium, which is a daughter of uranium, radium-226, which gave Madame Curie uh, leukaemia or aplastic anemia and her daughter died of leukaemia, very, very toxic that's been found in vegetation, in the water, around, in people's gardens and the like. And other daughters like radon gas, which is a very carcinogenic gas and is a major cause of lung cancer in the world today, that's been seeping out of the, of the dumps, etc. And there are quite a lot of daughters of uranium that are polluting the area. There's a high incidence of cancers, one of which is cancer of the appendix. Now look, that is as rare as hen's teeth as we say in Australia because hens don't have teeth. You call them chickens, we call them chooks. Anyway, rare as hen's teeth, appendiceal cancer, I think there are 23 cases. I don't know why the uranium or, or, or one of its daughters would lodge in the appendix. And also there's a, quite a high incidence of leukemia, of brain cancers, etc., etc. So the people have been impacted by this since 1945. So they're victims of the Cold War. And they've just been left really to rot in place. And the Environmental Protection Agency has taken no responsibility, nor has the federal government. And, of course, what they did was they sold it off to private companies, for heaven's sake. And the private companies, of course, they don't want to know what to do with it, and they don't, you know, they want to make profits, so they don't care. So things are very grim. So I'm going to address a symposium orchestrated by the local community college and, and do a, quite a lot of media talking about how radiation and these radioactive elements cause cancer and what should be done, of course, the whole community should be evacuated, like they should be evacuated from your town in Port Hope in, in Canada, which is built on radioactive tailings. Yes, indeed. And it isn't just the fire risk. Anybody watching the evening news has seen video of the extreme rainfall events that have hit the St. Louis area this winter with floods reaching down much of the Mississippi River. 
I've seen photos of rainwater washing out of that nuke dump we're talking about at the Westlake Landfill into local ditches and streams. It's a big concern, really. I don't know what they... I mean, let's be pragmatic. What should they do with it? Well, I suppose they need to ship it somewhere um, out in the desert, dig huge holes and put it back in the, in the ground from whence it came because all the uranium has been mined from underneath the ground and it's safer in... Well, it's quite safe in the ground... And that's what should happen. Of course, it'll cost a lot of money, but America's, you know, they spend over a trillion dollars a year on weapons and killing and death in the Pentagon. So the money's there. It just has to be reallocated for the health and well-being of the American people, not for death and destruction and the end of the earth. Well, meanwhile, the Environmental Protection Agency is proposing to build some kind of wall uh, between the landfill site where the fire is and the nuclear dumping site. What do you think of that? Oh, it won't happen in time, A. B, I don't know if that will make any difference. C, why don't they remove the stuff? D, why don't they dig a hole in the waste, in the, in the rubbish dump and put the fire out? and simultaneously moving the radioactive waste from that area and taking it somewhere where it can be put back in the ground safely. So it's like building an ice wall around Fukushima to stop the water flowing into the ocean. It's a notion that is baseless in science. And, you know, just as you say, we picture a nuclear waste site as high-tech, but I've seen actual photos of this Westlake landfill in Missouri, and it's just a pile of dirt with no containment other than... It's just got plastic tarps on top. Are the plans any better for what they want to do in Australia? They haven't announced what their plans are. Anyway, you know, there's nowhere in the world that they've developed a system or a facility to store radioactive safely for the next million years, according to the Environmental Protection Agency in America. There's nowhere. Yeah, it's true. You know, the United States has had 60 years to deal with the nuclear materials from the Manhattan Bomb Project. And, you know, at the Hanford Nuclear Reserve in Washington State, that's just south of me, there's giant piles, as you know, of super radioactive materials just sitting in rotting concrete tubs, and every now and then they talk about them exploding. It's never been properly handled by anyone in the history of the nuclear age. No, Hanford's just a... It's like hell. And I know the incidence of anencephalic babies is quite high in that area, babies born with no brains and other severe congenital anomalies. So it's just an absolute disaster. And what staggers me is that the industry keeps making more and more and more and more of the stuff with nowhere to put it. And they know that. They know that. So, you know, these people, I think, are criminals and should be jailed because they're long-term murderers. Well, I mean, how much does it... What, what, what would you pay a woman who's given birth to a baby with no brain? What's that worth? We're approaching the end of our time together, Helen. Is there anything else that you want to get out to our listeners? Yeah, I think go to my website, helencaldicott.com, and read the books that I've written and learn. As Jefferson said, an informed democracy will behave in a responsible fashion, particularly if you're a mother and a father who loves their children. That's what you must do, and then you must decide what you're going to do about it and become John's or Joan of Arc, get on your white steed and change the whole policy in Canada. I have a little hope for Justin Trudeau. I met with Pierre, his father, um, and convinced him to start the Five Continent Six Nation Peace Initiative. And I'm hoping that Justin will be similar to his wonderful father 
But who knows? Well, we'll have to wait and see. But you can change. You do live in a democracy, which means you, means you take responsibility for your country and for your children. Be sure to check out the latest book edited by Helen Caldicott, Crisis Without End, The Medical and Ecological Consequences of the Fukushima Nuclear Catastrophe. You can find more links to stories we've talked about in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Helen, thank you so much for talking with us again today. It's my extreme pleasure, Alex. I'm Alex Smith reporting for Radio Ecoshock. My conclusion? Any more money spent on nuclear power is a waste of the dwindling fuel, resources, and carbon space in the atmosphere. Humans will have to be very fortunate to care for existing plants over dozens of generations. Given our history, our failed economics, and the magnitude of climate disruption developing, some reactors somewhere will blow out, slowly or in concert. I hope I am not one of the unlucky evacuees if the radioactive tanks blow up at Hanford and Washington State. I hope none of you is predestined to abandon a whole region of your country with all the beloved spaces, experiences, and resources lost to humans. Accepting that risk is a betrayal of nature, a betrayal of whatever or whoever initiated this possibility of everlasting evolution of life here in space. That's what I think. That's what I feel. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Radio EcoShock again this week. Here is a bit from Talkin' Endgame. It's the radioactive song by Michelle Montecrosa. Spreads the threat to this heart of mine. Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant brought the demon claim. Talking and game. Well, it's the radioactive song. It's meant to feel. And choose Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant Let it do you too Talking and game It's the radioactive song Italian clothings Will and recycle Japanese paper As the inside monster It's hacking and game It's the radioactive song The picture of vision 
revolution in me is going on. We too into the city for a mega overthrow. Like frequent, we are something that cannot be Wait.